This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. Father, we, we come before you as a, a holy God, and we pray that you would make us holy people, that more and more as your spirit works in our lives, that, that we would be more and more like Christ through the power of the spirit. And so we pray that today as we opened up your word uh, to read it and to study it um, that by your spirit that you would you would set us more and more um, apart from sin apart from things that would be dishonoring and displeasing to you and that you would make us more and more like Jesus that we could be more and more useful to you um, more and more ready for every good work that you have for us. And so, Lord, we, we're at different points in our journey uh, here th this morning. Uh, there, there are some here that, that need to know you, that need to be brought into a relationship with, with you as a living God. And we, we pray that by your spirit that you would, would create new life open up a, a whole new beginning. There are others here who are weighed down by uh, sin uh, that need to be released from that, that need a breakthrough uh, from that. There's, there's a weight that needs to be laid down. Others need encouragement today. They need a word of, of hope today. Lord, may... May people who are in that situation see that in Christ all things are possible. Nothing is too hard for you. And we're in the right place today to hear that word of encouragement and hope. And so, Lord, there are all kinds of good things that we can think of that you could do in people's lives today. But there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of things that you have purposed, that you can do through your word today. And we pray that you would, and that your, your name would be glorified. The name of your son would be glorified as that happens. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Dr. D.A. Carson is, is one of my favorite uh, New Testament scholars. And uh, he, his testimony is interesting. He, he grew up the son of a Baptist pastor in Canada, in Quebec, actually, at a time when Baptists were very persecuted in, in, in Quebec. And so came a strong Christian family, but he was very attracted to the sciences. And so he did a, an undergraduate degree in chemistry and had begun to, to work in a, a, a lab, but he was also volunteering in his little local church and he found himself just kind of more and more uh, passionately 
attracted to what God was doing in the church, but you know, he fought pretty far down the road in his, his career and everything at that point, couldn't really envision a change. And then in the providence of God, he was in a, a service and uh, the pastor uh, mentioned a verse and it was from the book of Ezekiel. And it was Ezekiel 22 and verse 30 where God says, I search for a man among them who would repair the wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land so that I might not destroy it, but I found no one. You ever, you ever been in a service where it's just like the Spirit of God just like a heat-seeking missile, I mean, right, right to your, your mind and heart? This was one of those moments for, for Dr. Carson. And he just, he felt in that moment in his spirit, yeah, I, I, I want to be useful to the master. And, and he knew that for him, uh, God was calling him to, to, to give his life to some form of, of vocational ministry. You know, if, if you love the Lord and your heart has been gripped by an understanding of the gospel, you know, when you, when you understand what Jesus has done for you, and redeeming you, and forgiving you, and giving you new life, and the Father adopting you as one of his own beloved children. And when, you, when that truth begins to grip your heart, you love the Lord, and you, you just want your life to be useful to him. Now, that doesn't always mean like, you know, some form of, of vocational ministry like Dr. Carson, but it means that, that in whatever situation you are in life, in whatever he calls you to do, you want your life to count. You want your life. You yearn for your life because you love the Lord and you're so blown away and thankful for what he's done for you, for his love, that you want your life to be useful to him. What does that look like? Let's talk about that today. I want you to open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we're going to talk about being useful to the master. 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we're going to look today at verses 20 through 26, one of my favorite passages, um, not only in 2 Timothy, but in the Bible. This is one that's just been so, so personally encouraging to me through the years, and can't wait to, I think it's the first time I've ever preached this text. Um, so it's, it'll, it's so, it was so wonderful to dig into it um, this past week and to, to bring it forth um, today. So let's look at it. 2 Timothy chapter 2 uh, and verses 20 through 26, useful to the master. Follow along in your Bibles. Paul says, now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also those of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. So if anyone purifies himself from anything dishonorable, he will be a special instrument, set apart, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Flee from youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, but reject foolish and ignorant disputes, because you know that these breed quarrels. The Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach, and patient 
instructing his opponents with gentleness. Perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. Then they may come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his, his will. So this text kind of breaks down neatly into two parts. And the first part of it, in verses 20 and 21, we see this illustration that Paul gives. And then in verses 22 through 26, he's going to kind of unpack that illustration with a series of commands. So first of all, we see in verses 20 and 21, an illustration to understand. He says in verse 20, now in a large house, a great house, a great estate, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also those of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Melissa and I have been watching a a series about uh, a great house, Downton Abbey. (laughs) And um, I looked this up. That series came out between 2010 and 2015. So we're like a decade late watching this, but it's all new to us because we haven't seen it. So if you have, no, no spoilers. We're, we're, we're wrapped up in this and wondering you know, what is going to happen in the lives of these people as this story unfolds, which is all about this kind of aristocratic family early in the 20th century, and, uh, and then they're, uh, they're all of their servants and all the things that are happening uh, kind of in their lives in this, in this great house. But it's, and what you see in this large house is that you, you see lots of people who are honorable, but you see some who are very dishonorable. And that's what Paul is talking about here in verse 20. Uh, he's not actually talking about a house or vessels. He's talking about people. People. But he uses kind of the analogy of vessels. In a great house, there are various kinds of vessels. Now, the word vessels here is a, is a word that it, it, can be, it can refer to, you, you know, um, plate, plates and glasses and uh, utensils. It can refer to tools. It can refer to various kinds of containers. And there are all kinds of those in this great house. So you think about, think about a, a large house in the in the first century world in which Paul is writing. So you would have in a, a wealthy estate like that, you would certainly have gold and silver vessels that would be brought out on special occasions, special plates and things like that um, that would be there for, for honored guests. But, you know, you would also have less honorable vessels. You would have, um, you would have uh, containers for garbage, uh, in a fir- and in the first century world, uh, without plumbing, uh, you'd have containers for stuff we don't even want to uh, talk about right now. So all kinds of different sorts of containers in a large house like this. Some for honorable use, some for, um, for, for dishonorable. And then we can relate to some of this even today. I mean, we've got, you know, we may have nicer, nicer plates or china or silver that are brought out on for very very special occasions but you know we've got 
paper plates and plastic forks that we just toss into the trash can when we're done. But whether it's a first century house or an early 20th century house like Downton Abbey or your house today, the most significant thing in the house is the people in the house. And that's what this illustration is about. It's not about knives and forks and containers. It's about people. So what kinds of people has Paul been talking about in chapters 1 and 2? Honorable people and dishonorable people. At the end of chapter 1, we met a very honorable, honorable man, Onesiphorus. And you remember that, that Paul says, this guy ministered to me faithfully. He continued to visit me in prison, even at the risk of his own life. And, and Timothy, you remember, he ministered faithfully by us side by side when we were all together in Ephesus. But, but Onesiphorus is presented there in contrast to Phygelus and Hermogenes who ghosted Paul when he was rearrested and put into prison. They deserted him because they didn't want to get persecuted themselves. They were out of there. They deserted Paul. They deserted the gospel. And then last week in chapter 2, we looked at Hymenaeus and Philetus who had also deserted the gospel. In fact, they were teaching rank heresy dishonorable and we also saw at the beginning of chapter 2 that he gave another illustration about honor and dishonor you remember it was in verses 4 through 6 let's look back at verses 4 through 6 here in chapter 2 he said there no one serving as a soldier gets entangled in the concerns of civilian life he seeks to please the commanding officer also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to get a share of the crops. But think about the contrast to these three honorable people. Think about a soldier who, rather than seeking to please the commanding officer, only wants to please himself and save his own skin. Think about the athlete who does not compete according to the rules, who cheats and is disqualified. Think about the farmer who does not work hard and therefore has no crop to produce. Honorable people, dishonorable people. And Paul here is talking about people and what makes honorable people. And he's going to unpack this even more in verse 21. So let's look at verse 21. He says, so if anyone purifies himself from anything dishonorable, he will be a special instrument or a, a vessel of honor, a vessel for honorable use, set apart, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. See, now he's going to take this illustration and bring it to a fine point. He says in verse 21, if anyone purifies himself. Now, the word purifies here is sometimes translated as, uh, as, as cleanses. It's, in Greek, it's the word kathiro, which is where we get the English word catharsis. 
And the King James is translated as purge, which is a good translation too. So if anyone purifies, cleanses, purges himself from what? From anything that is dishonorable. What's he talking about? What's he been talking about in the context of this passage? What would be dishonorable? Bad teaching, bad behavior. That's, that's what surrounds this passage. If anyone cleanses himself from bad teachings, false teachings, and, 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 and bad behavior that goes along with it, ungodly behavior, beginning even in our thought lives, then he will be what? A special instrument or a, a, an honorable vessel, a vessel of honor, a vessel that is for honorable use. Now, what he does from this point is that he unpacks what it means to be that. What does it mean to be a special instrument that is set aside for, the, for God's glory? What does it mean to be a vessel of honor, a vessel that is set aside for honorable use? And he uses three phrases to unpack that. First of all, he says that you're set apart. And he's talking about holiness. We just sung about holiness. This is what this means. We're, to, to be holy is to be set apart exclusively for God's use and God's glory. It means to be more and more set, up, set apart from things that don't glorify the, the Lord, set apart more and more from, from sin. It means being different so that we can make a difference in the lives of others. So set apart, and then what? Useful to the master. This is somebody that he can count on. You know, think about the illustration that he gave in, in verses 4 through 6. You know, can the commanding officer count on the, the soldier who's a coward? Of course not. Can the coach count on the athlete who is going to cheat and be disqualified? Of course not. Can a landowner count on a lazy farmer? Of course not. We want to be useful to the master. We want to be someone that he, he knows he can count on. And be, here's the third phrase, prepared for every good work. And the word prepared there means ready, eager, ready, eager, prepared, you know, ready for his command, at his service. We want to wake up every day like this, Lord, I'm yours, I'm yours, I'm your agent today. You, you take me, I want, to be, I want my life to be useful to you. I'm ready, eager, willing. Here am I, send me today. Send me to people I need to talk to. Send me into situations where I need to be. Lord, you know. You know the future. You know what this day holds. I'm yours. But see, to be that kind of a person, we need to shed off the, the, the weights in our lives that hinder, right? If anyone purifies himself from anything dishonorable, he will be a special instrument set apart, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. So there's gotta be this purifying, cleansing process. It's like Hebrews 12, one. 
let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily entangles so that we can run with perseverance the race that is set before us. If you're getting ready to run a, a race and you're weighed down, you gotta toss that aside, you gotta get rid of that weight so that you can, you can run that race, right? What, what weight is weighing you down today? What's, what is the sin that's, in, in, that's entangling? You gotta deal with that, right? You gotta deal with that. That's gotta be, that's gotta be put aside. That's what he's talking about here. So in this illustration to understand. Now, he's gonna unpack it and give us a, a command to obey. It begins in verse 22. He says, flee from youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So what does he do here in verse 22? He gives us something to flee from and he gives us some things to follow after. What's, what does he tell us to flee from? Flee from youthful passions. Now, sometimes this is translated as youthful lust, which makes people, it gives people the, the impression that he's just talking about um, fleeing from sexual immorality, which is part of it. Um, and it certainly includes that, but it's not totally what he's talking about here. So let me, let me talk about both of those things. It certainly does include, when he says flee youthful passion, certainly part of that means fleeing anything that smacks of sexual immorality, for sure. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, in verses 3 through 5, which is a, a, a major text on that, you can see the relationship, even in the wording here, like words like holiness and honor. So we see that in, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 5, he says, for this is God's will, your sanctification, Another word uh, set apart, okay, same word group. This is God's will, your sanctification, that you keep away from sexual immorality, that each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who, who don't know God. So, so part of this, when he says to flee youthful passions, you know, certainly that would include all forms of sexual immorality, but that's not the whole of what he's talking about. In fact, in the context of what he's talking about here, he's, he's certainly also, and even mainly probably in this text, referring to things like anger. That would be a youthful passion. Anger, harshness, impatience, those kinds of things. It, you know, it, when we're, we're younger, we tend to be more, um, more jumpy, <laughs> more uh, we, can be, we, can, we can be, he's talking about things like contentiousness, um, more apt to quarrel, got to have the last word, got to win, win every argument, you know, th those, those kinds of things, um, imp impatient. Um, Quick-tempered, dealing with things with a sledgehammer when what is really needed is a gentle touch. So he's also telling Timothy, as 
a young guy in ministry. Look, you, you need to flee from that. Because what this church in Ephesus really, really needs is they need a they need calm. They need a they need love. They need a gentle, caring touch after what they have have been have been through. And we'll talk more about that as we go along this morning. So flee from that. Flee youthful passions, whether that's sexual immorality, whether that's you know um, anger, harshness, contentiousness, you know that kind of thing. Flee from that and follow after what? Four things here. Righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Okay, so first of all, pursue righteousness. In Christ, we have already been made positionally righteous. When you you trust in Jesus, you are made right with God in your position before the Lord. So you're positionally righteous if you are in Christ, but then the Christian life is a process of becoming more and more practically righteous in the way that we live. So that our practice and our actual living becomes more and more like our position in Christ. So pursue righteousness. Second, pursue faith. And this would mean a couple of things. First of all, it means holding on to the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. But it also means walking by faith in your everyday life, learning to trust the Lord with the practical issues of your life every day, walking by faith. Learning to trust the Lord day by day, moment by moment, in every situation. Pursue righteousness, faith, and then love. Christians are to be known for their love. Jesus says in John 13, by this will all people know that you are my disciples if you love one another. But we're not only to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, but everyone even opponents, because Christ loved us when we were his opponent. (laughs) Romans chapter five and and verse eight, it says that God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us before before, when we were still in sin, when we were still running from him, he died for us when we were still his opponents, his enemies, right? So our love extends beyond those who are easy to love. And we'll talk more about that as we go through this too. And then pursue peace. Pursue peace. Follow after peace. And there are several dimensions of this. There's peace with God. In Christ, we have been put at a state of peace with God Because of the work of Christ, Romans 5, 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we trust in Christ, we're we're made right with God and we're put in a state of peace with him. If you're not in Christ, you're not at peace with God. But in Christ, we have a peace with God 
And then also, as we learn to, uh, to trust the Lord and not, you know, instead of worrying about things, as we learn to, to, to trust the Lord in our everyday lives, we enjoy the peace of God. That's Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And then there's peace in relationships. We're to pursue peace in relationships. To, and it, 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 and it, with everything that, as far we can't control the reactions of other people, we control ourselves. And what does he say in, in Romans 12, 18? He says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, let's go back to verse 22, the end of verse 22. And what we see is that as we flee and as we follow after these things, that it is not a solo project. What does he say? Flee from youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, and along with, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. In other words, the Christian life, this life of flight and pursuit, as we flee from things that are dishonoring to the Lord, as we follow after things that honor God, that is not a solo Lone Ranger project that we're doing out here on our own. We need the church. We need brothers and sisters in Christ. And we help one another. We spur one another on in this journey of flight and pursuit. Look at verse 23. He says, but reject foolish and ignorant disputes because you know that they breed quarrels. What was one of the primary characteristics of these false teachers in Ephesus? They were a quarreling bunch. Look back to 1 Timothy chapter 6. And let's look there at, at verses 4 and 5, 1 Timothy 6. And we'll pick it up in verse 4. Paul here is talking about what was the, the mentality of, you know, the, the false teachers like the ones in Ephesus. He says there, he is conceited and understands nothing, but has an unhealthy interest in disputes and arguments over words. From these come envy, quarreling, slander, evil suspicions, and constant disagreement among people whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth. You know, and so in contrast to that, what was Timothy to be like? That's what verses 24 and 25 are all about. Let's look at them. He says, beginning in verse 24, the Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach and patient, instructing his opponents with gentleness. Now, much of what he says here would apply to any Christian, because after all, patience 
is a fruit of the Spirit. Gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. That would apply to, to any believer, but you, you see the flavor of the language here. He's talking about instruction, able to teach. Paul is saying, Timothy, this especially applies to you as a church leader, and, and Timothy was in the process of helping this church to select good pastors. So there's a special application here, certainly, to, um, to, to, to pastors. So what does he say here? He says, the Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone. You remember in 1 Timothy 3, when we talked about the qualifications for pastors, elders, one of the things we saw there in 1 Timothy 3, 3, that is that he is to be not a bully, but gentle. And then the very next phrase was not quarrelsome. Not a bully, but gentle and not quarrelsome. If a pastor has a contentious, quarreling type of spirit, that, that is going to, to bleed over into the overall culture of that church, which is exactly what had happened in Ephesus. And what Paul is saying here to Timothy is that, listen, this church needs from you the opposite of that. They, they need gentleness. They need uh, the opposite of a contentious, quarreling kind of, of a spirit. The Lord's servant must, be, must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone. And then the next phrase is able to teach. Now again, remember 1 Timothy 3, when he goes through the list of qualifications of pastors, the, almost everything that he says there would, would apply to any healthy, growing Christian, basically except for one thing, and that is that pastors must be able to teach. Pastors must be uh, gifted to to teach the word of God, to give instruction from the word of God. And he says to, to do that with patiently, patiently, be able to teach and patient. Why? Because not everybody's going to get it quickly. They're not going to get it immediately. And if you are not patient with them, they, they may, not, may not get it at all. If you are harsh and impatient with people, they may never get it. So look, Paul, Paul knows this church at Ephesus, the, the problems, the, uh, the confusion from bad teaching in this church, it did not happen overnight, and it was not going to get solved and healed overnight. It was going to take a lot of patient instruction over a period of time. And then he says... Instructing, beginning of verse 25, instructing his opponents with gentleness. Now, he's probably not talking about the false teachers themselves that created the problems. They seem, they seem to have been uh, gone. He needed to take a very firm hand with them. 
right? And they seem to be out of there, but, but the damage that they left, the collateral damage in that church was left behind. So you had a lot of people that were confused. And, but those people were salvageable with a lot of loving care, with a lot of patient instruction and gentleness and love. Those people could be restored. And so he says at the end of verse 25, and the beginning of and, and verse 26, he says, perhaps God will grant them repentance. Stop right there. Perhaps God will grant them repentance. This is something that must come from the Lord. This is why we must pray for people, for God to do a work, a sovereign work in their hearts that God may grant repentance because it's supernatural. This is not something that we can argue people into. It's going to take God's Holy Spirit granting repentance and opening hearts to respond in faith. It's going to take a supernatural work of God. This is why we talk about who's your one. This is why prayer is so huge in that. Because when we think about people in our lives who don't yet know the Lord... We desperately begin with prayer for them because it's, ultimately it's God. God must grant repentance and open hearts to see the beauty of, of Christ and to respond in faith. Right? So we, we, we must couple all of our evangelistic efforts with faith for God to do a work in people's hearts. Grant repentance. Right? Perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. Then they may come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Notice the language here of bondage. The trap of the devil. He's taken them, what, captive. You know, sometimes we can think of, um, of lost people as our enemy. They are not our enemy. They are captives of the enemy. They are entrapped by the enemy. We are praying for them to be set free. And, and wasn't this the case with all of us at one point? If you are in Christ, it is only because God sets you free, sheerly out of his mercy and grace. Ephesians chapter, chapter 2 and verses 1 through 5. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. This was all of us. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the, diso in the disobedient. We too, all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. This week I was had some IMB trustee meetings, and you know, one of the highlights of those meetings is, is being with our missionaries that are being sent out 
to the ends of the earth. And you get to hear their stories. And, uh, and I was in one meeting this particular week, and there was a young couple that just, uh, their, their story just touched my heart. Uh, they're maybe 23 and 24 or something uh, now. They were, they were both saved at 18 uh, when they went off to a major university. The young man um, grew up in kind of a nominally religious background, but didn't know anything, basically. And, and there were some guys, uh, some guys at his college that began to share the gospel with him, uh, brought him to uh, a solid gospel-preaching church where he could learn more, and the Spirit just did an amazing work in, in his life. And then there was his young wife. She was raised in a militantly atheist household. And she herself was. So she delighted in arguing with Christians and and poking fun of them, refuting, trying to refute what they said. And she went to college with that mentality. But there were some some girls, there were some young women who, who loved her unconditionally. And they were praying for her. And they were sharing the good news of Jesus with her. She ended up joining a sorority filled with a lot of Christian young women who were loving her, sharing the gospel with her. She came to faith in Christ, and they brought her to a solid Bible-preaching church, which was the same church (laughs) where her future husband was. And so they were growing rapidly in Christ, got married, and they're getting ready to leave for the nations with their one-year-old baby. And you're sending them out. But see, look, this is what God can do. When, when we think about people who don't yet know him, who are still captives of the enemy, listen, we need to think about them. You need to think about lost people in your life. At least one and maybe more than one who doesn't yet know Christ. And when you think about them, think about them not just as who they currently are, but who they could be in Christ. And you pray for them. You bring them before the throne of God's grace. And you pray for the Spirit of God to touch their lives and to grant repentance and faith and new life for them and raise them spiritually from the dead. You pray for them, and you couple your prayers with love. And part of loving people is sharing about the good news of Jesus with them. And invite them to a church like this where they can hear even more. And you let your brothers and sisters in Christ around you right now, who will welcome them warmly, you let them be your teammates in this. You let me and the other pastors be your teammates in this as the gospel is proclaimed week by week from this pulpit. And we'll see what the Spirit of God can do in their lives. What does he want to do in your life today? What is that thing in your life that is holding you back? What's that weight that needs to be let aside? What is that dishonorable thing that you need to be cleansed from? Let's bring that before the Lord today and let's leave it here 
in this place. For some of you, it means turning to Jesus today as your Savior and Lord and King. And saying, Lord Jesus, I believe that you died for sinners like me. I believe that you rose from the dead that you are a living, reigning Lord, and I'm giving my life to you, all that I am for all that you are. For some of you, it means, Lord, I want to be useful to you. I want my life to count. I want you to be able to count on me. And I want my life to be maximally useful to the master. Let's pray together. Father, we bring these things before you. We pray for your Holy Spirit to touch each one of us right now. For the decisions that need to be made. For the stakes that need to be driven into the ground in this moment. Lord, we pray that you would deal with our hearts by your grace as only you can. Oh, we thank you for the good news of Jesus. We thank you for the new life that he brings abundant life, eternal life. Help us to walk in the life and the light of Christ. And it's in his name that we stand. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia.